Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us this week is the haunting Elise of the Podwraiths podcast. Thank you for having me and letting me haunt you. (laughs) It is the third week of Spooktober 3. Son of Spooktober. This week, we are talking about Hammer Horror. Tessa, you have to say it's Hammer time. Do I have to? Yeah. Are you the host of a podcast about Hammer Horror if you don't take this opportunity to say that it's Hammer time? I don't even know if I'm qualified to say that it's Hammer time. I need you to say that it's Hammer time. It's Hammer time? Now do it in the voice. I don't know how to do the voice. No, the I don't think people understand no, no, no. how young I was. No, no, no. Do the Spooktober voice. Oh, it's hammer time. Is that better? I re- yeah, I regret asking you to do that. <laughs> Would you say that she should have been too legit to quit? I think we need to pray that this podcast goes well. <laughs> Just to make it to Lay our hands on this podcast. Also, Adam's family rap. The end. <laughs> After whatever you that know, was. You know, he had a cartoon. MC Hammer, he had a cartoon. Oh, he had a cartoon. Yes, yeah. I am aware of that. I don't think I knew that, actually. Which feels like a fail on my part. <laughs> Hammer Film Productions Limited is a British film production company based in London. It was founded in 1934, but it is best known for its series of horror and fantasy films made from the mid-50s until the 70s. Many of these involve classic horror characters like Victor Frankenstein, Count Dracula, and The Mummy, which Hammer reintroduced to audiences by filming them in color for the first time. Basically, Hammer's marketing strategy was, we can tell these stories, we can tell them in color, and we don't have to obey your stupid code rules. Elise, what is your familiarity with Hammer Horror? I heard of it last week when you invited me to come on this podcast. So this is like a true monkey for you. Like you hadn't even... Well, is it a monkey though if you didn't know it existed? I feel like a monkey would be something you wanted to watch, right? Not that I wouldn't have wanted to watch this. If If you had known these existed, would you have wanted to watch them? Oh, totally. I mean, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing are both very important to me, uh, mostly from Star Wars and, well, Christopher Lee also, mo- more from Lord of the Rings. And also, I love that he has a heavy, heavy, heavy metal albums. I have also not read Dracula or Frankenstein, so I'm coming from a, an extremely newbie place. But yeah, I knew Christopher Lee had done horror movies. I just didn't know any of the details. Monkeys can come from any direction at any moment. (laughs) That's terrifying. (laughs) Keep that monkey off your back. Oh, that's very spooktober forward. That's like, oh, is this like a poltergeist monkey? Like, damn. I don't fuck with poltergeist. I will just say that. (laughs) As opposed to vampires. Yeah. I mean, vampires are very fuck with vampires. Yeah. We're going to talk about right. that a lot. We have a very pro vampire position on this podcast. I'm part of that. Yes, I agree. That's partially why we invited you on. So I mentioned last week that AMC, Turner Classic Movies, before Turner Classic Movies, had a really good October lineup 
And I know it must have been around then that I learned about Hammer Horror. Didn't watch any, but that was kind of an accessibility issue still back then. But I liked the idea that they basically did the Universal Monsters again. But then I realized that Tarkin from Star Wars was a regular in these films. And I distinctly remember that, which must mean I knew of this before episode two came out, before Attack of the Clones, because I didn't really know much about Christopher Lee. I mean, I had seen him in Lord of the Rings, at least, maybe, I don't know. Was He was in the first one. He was in Fellowship. Yeah, he's in all three. Yeah, So, but it might have even been before then, too. So I may not have really known who Christopher Lee was prior to that. Which is fascinating, as we're going to talk about later, because he has a prolific film career. Right. Well, you know, before the internet, it was hard to know things. I think what's really funny about that is, prior to the internet, one of the big ways that people knew about film and music and stuff is from zines, like zine culture. And now, like, years into the internet, moving into Internet 3.0, we find ourselves with, with with our buddy Ryan... Doing zine stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. true. What's old we're is writing new. for movies, John. Yeah. You'll see uh you'll see articles from us starting next month. Well, from you. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I uh I I'm wish. excited. So I the other thing to do here is and I know you want to talk more specifically about the comparison between these and the universal films later, but I do want to at least bring up now that the other big you have Universal, you have Hammer. And I think you, in the same breath, even though they aren't reboots, they're different stories, are Val Luton's RKO films from the 40s, which are in some ways the missing link between the OG Universal and the Hammer reboots. Val Luton was a writer who produced these films for RKO. And basically, if you recall, the deal was we will give you these titles and you just make whatever movie you want. And he was like, okay, what do you want me to make a movie about? Cat people. I can work with that. I walked with a zombie. I can work with that. The seventh victim. Lots of room there. The body snatchers. These are from 1942 to 1945. The body snatcher, by the way, has Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And Isle of the Dead has Boris Karloff. What's interesting, too, to say about this before we move on is these movies are very zombie forward, but they aren't zombies in the Romero shambling way. These are problematic depictions of zombies that are resulting from Caribbean mythos, you know, uh, French Creole I'm I'm telling you these are voodoo zombies and it's problematic, but that's kind of where uh, well, these cat aren't the first. Well, people is more Eastern European, right? If you want to talk about horror franchises and horror production studios, it you have to drop off into RKO land before you move on from Universal to Hammer. But they're they're really odd little films. We should do an RKO week next year. We should we should. You've seen Cat People, yeah. Yeah, I do like the idea. I didn't realize that basically they were like, here's a title, make a story out of it. I love that. That's like a cool little writing prompt No, no, no. It wasn't, e- it wasn't even that. It was, here's a title, 
well, here's the movie I have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you give them way too much synergy credit there. It was just like, <laughs> you can make whatever movie you want as long as you use this film title. I'm just laughing at like if someone wrote a, made a movie like about dogs and someone had like cat people as a title and they just like did not rectify it and just had like a movie about dogs, but it was called Cat People. A movie called Cat People, but it's about a she-wolf. That would be pretty funny. I mean, I that's like essentially that. what Cat People is. Yeah, just... that is what Cat People is. It's just about a oh, cat oh, wolf. She's a were cat. No, well, a were cat. Yeah, a were cat. Yeah. I feel like was there a were cat? In True Blood, there had to have been. I just don't remember. There's the Were Panthers, right? In the books, one of the main characters is a um, a Were Tiger. Oh, right. And Sookie gets down with him for a while. I forgot about that. I've read all of them as well. I mean, she gets down with everybody in the books, yes. and Sookie and that's is great really for her. A equal species opportunist when it comes to getting down, and I haven't read the books, but even in the show, that's true. <laughs> There's there's a pun to be made here about Sookie's stack house, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Somebody else will have to do that. So I'm actually the same way as Elise. I had watched all of the Universal films, and I knew that the Hammer versions existed, but I hadn't seen any of them. I also didn't know that Lee played all the villains. Like For some reason, I thought that like maybe he had just played like Dracula, and then he and Cushing like, switched off or something. I didn't realize that it was always... Cushing played like the protagonist and and Lee played the antagonist. Although I did know he played Dracula because apparently and it took me years to put these pieces together. My mom watched one of his movies when she was a kid and she told me this story because I, I don't know which one it was. I don't know if it was the original one or if it was one later because he played Dracula six times and Apparently, it freaked her out so much that she went to bed with, like, garlic and a cross. Oh, my gosh. But my grandfather, like, snuck into her room and, like, scared the shit out of her. <laughs> so it's, it's like, a whole, like, family mythology thing. But that's it took me a long time to realize it was Christopher Lee's vampire that she was talking about. I love that. I would argue for Frankenstein that the roles are reversed, but... Otherwise, I agree That's with you true. with what you're saying, and I didn't realize that they. When we even talked about doing this, I didn't realize that all they were both in all three movies that we were talking about. That's kind of the unofficial theme of this week. It is Hammer Horror, but really, it's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing week. Can I tell you? I just looked up to see who has played Dracula the most number of times, and it's probably Christopher Lee, but. Nobody seems to agree on how many times. Really? You said six. I just saw the internet say nine and ten. So he's one of the few people. Archival footage. It could be more. I'm just saying he's one of the few people who has played a horror monster six or more times. Like I just looked at a list of it the other day. And there's like a limited number of people who have actually like recurringly played the same character. Robert England is another one. who He played Freddy Krueger. More than six times, six or more times. Which I'm terrified of. Um, I was listening to your pod on um, that new, was it the new Nightmare movie the other day? And I yeah. was like, debated <laughs> fast forwarding through it, but I listened. Yeah, he is very creepy. I think the other ones are Brad Dourif and Warwick Davis mm. are the other two that have done that. There may be more, but like it is a very short list. Of people who have done this, and the, at the top of the list is Christopher Lee. Right, and we associate Bela Lugosi with it, right? But he's only really done it twice. 
So the other thing right. I was very shocked to discover is apparently Hammer Horror is still making films. They have released quite a few films in the last decade or so. Beyond the Rave, which came out in 2008, Let Me In, which I think is an adaptation of Let the Right One In in 2010, The Resident, 2011, The Woman in Black, 2012, The Quiet Ones in 2014, and The Lodge came out in 2019. So I was shocked. I had no idea because I don't think of Hammer as like a still functioning horror studio. And I've heard of The Lodge, but that's about it. So what you're saying is, unlike in the music scene, it is still Hammer time. (laughs) (laughs) so like we're gonna talk about like the main three i think that people associate with hammer horror the curse of frankenstein there's some debate on whether it's the horror of dracula or just dracula like i think it depended on where it was released the title that they gave it and then the mummy so let's start with the curse of frankenstein which came out in 1957 i feel like Most people know the premise of this film, which is Victor Frankenstein is a mad scientist who is not willing to let anything, including grave robbing and murder, get in the way of him creating a living human being made out of dead human beings, a creature. Elise, what were your first thoughts on this film? My TLDR was, I wish I had a friend like Paul to talk me out of my nonsense. Paul is a good friend. He's trying to be a good friend. Is Paul a good friend? He's a good friend to Victor. I don't know that he's a good friend to Elizabeth, but that's another conversation. Isn't he an enabler? Uh, See, I think there's a class dynamic here because he tries to tell Victor many times that what he's doing is wrong. This film is really good about presenting Victor as someone who has literally never been told no. Like, he gets all this money when he's a teenager, and he hires Paul, which automatically is a class dynamic. This is a Burns and Smithers dynamic. Mm. So I don't know. I don't think he's a friend at all. Well, yeah. So he's an employee. Yep. For ease of use, I'm going to stick with my calling him a friend. But, okay, so when, when I saw that, right, the whole good friend thing, here's what I thought about. And, you know, you have to be careful about victim blaming here. Although that's not really what this is. It's his fault that the creature had an abnormal brain. That's true. It's his fault. It's totally his fault. He knew what Victor was going to do. He should have either stopped it or not. Instead, he half-assed it, and look what it got us. Because, guys, I don't know if you know this, but if you have shards of jar glass in your head, in your brain... Probably going to turn out like this. I don't understand why Victor just didn't get another brain. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, like... It, he waited that long. You have money, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. But maybe, maybe like, he dumped all of his money into, like, the, the, the fruit juice syrups. Oh, maybe. Yeah. The, the, what did we think about his lab, which is, like... It's like a Sonic kitchen. Like, the <laughs> like I want a blue slush. I want one of those. I loved the lab. It just felt very, um, it really put me in in the time. Um, it really was just, the. also the way they filmed him like running around in it was very funny to me. Like he just, they just would like follow him around. The roof with the big window reminded me of Edward Scissorhands, which obviously came out after this, but it just felt very like, I just love the idea of like something weird happening in the attic. Like it just felt very um, mixing up the medicine in the attic. 
It just, I really liked it. There was a lot of <laughs> things happening. It just, it felt very it lived felt very in. Messy. It, yeah, it felt very lived in. You had like an LED board in the background. That yeah, like fast. Like this was, this is the kid who built his own computer and then like put all the LED strips inside it. That's what this lab <laughs> is. I felt like the little, um, the like tub thing that he had the bodies in just reminded me of Wolverine getting his oh, like yeah. the adamantium is that I can never pronounce that correct like installed oh, you got it <laughs> in him and it just felt like the same I wonder if the person who first came up with that idea was thinking about this movie like having him in a tub like that like you mentioned Paul is not a great friend to Elizabeth because <laughs> despite him saying over and over again that he's staying to protect her and telling her over and over again that she should leave, he never tells her why. Right. And, like, I'm going to be honest. Like, if I was in her position, I would believe the person I had known longer rather than this random guy who won't tell me his reasoning for why he wants me to leave the only secure place that I have to live. Okay, but but you know why this happens. You You know this. Romantic and teen comedies have taught me cannot be the one who tells the girl that the guy is doing bad stuff because if you're the bearer of bad news there is no possible way you will end up with her later that's fair right yeah so he is playing a long game it feels very much though in the tradition of the batman 66 poor deluded child like she can't handle the truth because she's a lady I kind of read it that way as well. Like she'd have like, a, but I also think it just fits the plot to not have told her that, is, you know, so she can go investigate it later on on her own. Yeah. All right. Wait a minute. I just need to clarify. Of the three of us, I'm the one who's reading the, the romance sex plot into this. No, no, no. I was going to ask everybody if we thought okay. Paul and Elizabeth ended up together at the end. I read it as they were together. It happens so fast, too. So fast. Yeah, I because the one thing I will complain about all three of these films is I don't think any of them end particularly well. It's like, oh, we're done now. Goodbye. Yeah. And like, there's no, I mean, there's no real confirmation that they're together. It's all subtext, but I assume they're together. I feel like if they weren't together, they might have visited him in the jail separately or she wouldn't have been there at all. So, Elise, you and your friend recently came up with a theory about this property and one of the major discourses around this property. Would you care to share with us? Sure. And I would like to take no credit for this. This was all my friend, Charlie. We were talking this past week and he was like, this is over text. And he was like, can I tell you something I feel about Frankenstein? And I was like, what kind of confession am I about to get? Like, who has some feelings? He was right. <laughs> I'm doing it. <laughs> and when he said Frankenstein, he meant the movie in general, not just, like, one of the characters. So I was like, I'm. if someone's like, can I tell you something? Like, there's, I am the most curious person. There is no way I'm ever going to say no to that. So I was like, of course, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically was saying that he felt that the people who are pedantic about when people call the creature Frankenstein and, you know, people are like, no, the 
the scientist is Frankenstein, he really felt like the people being pedantic are wrong because the creature is Victor Frankenstein's son. And I really felt that. I just thought that was like a good observation. And I did get the impression that my friend had read the book. I have not read the book, so I couldn't really comment on that aspect of it. But he said it kind of played his, the way he looked at it worked for the themes in the book. And I just thought, I have to read this book now. What it reminded me of when you said people who are pedantic about Frankenstein, I'm like, that fair play. However, once you've been in a ballroom full of people, a ballroom, not one of the little conference rooms, a ballroom full of people at an international conference, you've just given a paper, like second time, right? Given a paper and a woman stands up and is like trembling. She's so angry and asks me, how dare you? That happened. Now, it wasn't about, you know, Frankenstein's creature, Frankenstein's monster. It was actually about Freud, as most bad things are. But, <laughs> but it was about this book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. The, the, the point is, like... You sullied Mary Shelley's name. Yeah, when you, have been, when you have been yelled at in a ballroom full of people at an international conference, like, it's like, no, I'm going to be very precise about Frankenstein from here on out. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's not fun in games. I also want to clarify that neither of us were sober when we were having this conversation. So it was very much all in all in good I fun. I think it's a legit claim, though, because there is a lot about parental yeah. creation, parental stuff, uh, motherhood, especially in the book Frankenstein. So it makes sense. And of course, Victor Frankenstein in the book has no children. So like right. the idea is, is that like he is like child. And, and the whole thing is he's neglecting Elizabeth, too. So right. that is not classically the way you get children and a lot of this comes down to you know there are two versions of frankenstein there's the i'm an artist look at me writing a book and then there's like the other i revised this to make it scarier because my husband died because he's an idiot and i need money and and that's how we get the transition from frankenstein's creature to frankenstein's monster you know that's where we kind of get into the slippery talk about who's the real monster the creation, or Frankenstein himself. Let's be very clear. Frankenstein, Victor, Frankenstein, Victor, is the monster. <laughs> he is the villain. He is the bad guy. And and, and part of the confusion, I think, is uh, comes from the fact that, that so many people refer to him as Frankenstein's monster. Well, he, he's not. He's Frankenstein's, Frankenstein's creature. He's Frankenstein's child. Right. If there's yeah. any monster, it, it's absolutely clear. It's it's Victor, I think. And I, I want to talk about that because I don't think this film pulls any punches when it comes to Victor. In fact, because if you look at the book and the more you read the book, I've read Frankenstein several times. It is a masterpiece of science fiction. It's the first piece of science fiction. It, the more you read that book, the more you realize that Shelley, the author, actively hates Victor, Victor Frankenstein. Like she does not think that what he's doing is right he she thinks that he's an idiot there's a lot in there that kind of under even though he's the narrator of most of the book right he there's a lot that like undercuts what he's saying and you get the impression that she's actually really more interested in the creature than she is Frankenstein and his motivations this story takes that 
and kind of makes its own story out of it. They don't really try to stay faithful to the source material, but I actually was kind of impressed with that because they basically said, we want to explore these aspects of the story. We want to explore Victor as a person and how he's actually an antagonist, but we're not going to like follow exactly what the story is. This was almost Frankenstein fan fiction to me. And I wanted to ask Sam, since you've also read the book, how... How do you feel about the way that they adapted this story? There is no danger of Christopher Lee's creature reading Paradise Lost. Right. There's just no danger of that. Unlike the one in the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no, I mean, because that's the thing about the original creature is that he's he's literate. He would pass the, uh, the Voight-Kampf test to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. He's supposed to be a Superman, like a literal Superman. He's right, supposed to be but, super strong, super intelligent. But he He's has, just misunderstood because of his looks. Yes, but he has humanity. Christopher Lee's mummy has more humanity than this 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 creature does in this movie. I think what Terrence Fisher, the folks who wrote the film, everybody there, they're riffing off of the universal story. Right. They're which, not really going back, as you said, to right. the source. And that's fine. You don't you don't have to. It really strikes me more as this is clearly the inspiration point for young Frankenstein. Yes. With mm-hmm. the Abbey normal brain. That's what strikes me about this. And and it's fine. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it doesn't have to be based on the original novel. That does not hurt my feelings. In fact, probably would have been better if Dracula had not stayed as close to the original story as it did. This film's relationship with Victor, because in the book... You have to like read between the lines because Victor is the narrator to understand that he's actually the antagonist. I mean, like it is clear, but it's not like outright said because he thinks he's doing the right thing. Right. But this film hits that really hard. Like he is the true villain of this film. He straight up murders Justine. Who he's been boning. Who he's been boning. And promised and he promised they were going to get married. And he was like, I totally lied to you. I will comment that Justine has one of the best movie screams that I've heard in a long time. Yeah, she does. But he also murders the professor. Yeah, he pushes him off the ledge. Come look at this picture. Oh, no, you have to back up a little to see it better. (laughs) That was actually very amusing to me. And he does it for his brain. Like, this is not just grave robbing. It's like this adorable old man who, like, came to see you. Like, I'm just going to kill him so I can make my creature yeah and he is also torturing the creature by constantly giving it brain surgery and you can tell that this that's what's happening because at one point when he comes into the room the creature is like clearly afraid of him like kind of cowers in the corner the way Cushing plays this character is that he literally can't seem to hear other people unless they're saying something he agrees with like Paul will give him all these reasons for why it's wrong what he's doing and Victor will just be like I'm sorry, what did you say? Like, he just, like, can't... It's like he can't hear. It kind of felt like someone who has ADHD and was hyper-focused on something. Like, it just... Where you can't... Like, they can't focus on anything else besides this one project. And that's kind of what I saw when when I was watching it. It was interesting, because I watched Dracula and the Mummy prior to watching this film. So it was interesting to see Peter Cushing playing a different type of role because in Dracula he plays Van Helsing and I don't remember his character's name in The Mummy because a lot of that movie escapes me even though I watched it this week. Um, (laughs) 
John Banning is his character. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I would never <laughs> have pulled that from anywhere in my brain. <laughs> and it just felt like he really thought... I couldn't tell if... Like, he actually has that line. We're not harming anyone, just robbing a few graves. And even if that is all you're doing, which is not, we know he does some murders, just because someone's dead doesn't mean they don't deserve the respect to be left alone. So I still don't even think his reasoning there makes sense because you are still disrupting these bodies. I just thought Peter Cushing was really great in this role. He's really believable. He he's he's quite manic through and I'm not one to like I don't mean to use a medical I don't term that I'm not qualified to use, but that's just how I saw it. So the James Whale version of this, the the Universal film from 31, is great. It's very useful for a lot of reasons. As I mentioned with Young Frankenstein, it occurs to me that I think a lot of our pop culture awareness of this story may very well come from this version instead. I'm reminded of the Treehouse of Horror. I've already brought up Burns and Smithers once, but I love the one where they're doing the Frankenstein riff. And it's just, this reminds me exactly of what happens in this film. Mr. Burns says, Smithers, hand me that ice cream scoop. <laughs> and, and I love your Burns and, voice. And, and Smithers says, ice cream scoop? Damn it, Smithers. This is, it isn't rocket science, it's brain surgery. <laughs> and then, and then, but it, the scene gets so much better. Like he hums, if I only had a brain. Pulls the brain out, puts it on his head, and he says, look at me, I'm Davy Crockett. <laughs> and then with the monster, and then when it's, it's, and then with the, the, it's a, it's a robot, actually, activates, he says, oh, that fellow at Radio Shack said I was mad. Well, who's mad now? And it's just, <laughs> that is the Peter Cushing energy from this movie. It, <laughs> plus, it's super fun reading Moff Tarkin into all of this. And it's like, for sure, there is a version of this where Christopher Lee plays Vader, and it's this, but Star Wars. I would watch that movie. I would watch that movie over several of the original nine films coming this December to Monkey Off My Backlog, The Eleven Days of Star Wars. <laughs> I like your point about like the grave robbing, though, because it's so sinister the way he plays it, like. I just need this one part and the rest of it's useless. Like it's very macabre the way it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't care about the rest of this guy's body. I just want his hands. Like, or I don't care about like this, like the, the scene where he's paying off the guy to get the eyeballs and he's just looking at them with this like very technical, like it, like he, he doesn't see these as like parts of a living person. They're just, they're just things to him. Well, and we also know, you mentioned this from Dickens, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, being the young adult person, you know, I, I'm thinking about Dana Schwartz's book, Anatomy. She gets into the idea that grave robbing was a central feature of medical research at this time. And it was. And so it's a marker of class. And to borrow another Mr. Burns word, crapulence, that you don't get the entire body. Very, it's very westward expansion, killing of the buffalo. Oh, look, you guys use the whole thing. Well, I don't. Let's just let that carcass rot. It's a very, very bad, very selfish, very 
again, crapulent thing to do. To clarify the Dickens reference, I'm talking about one of the strangest subplots of Tale of Two Cities that involves a man who is clearly grave robbing in his spare time. It's very funny, but very weird that it's in that book. However, I did also want to bring up, because this came up a lot when we were talking about this beforehand, this Victor, unlike the one in Universal and in the book, fucks. What did we think about Peter Cushing's inclusion of sex into this character? I very much said to myself, probably out loud, when Victor and Elizabeth have their first kiss, this is a kissing movie! (laughs) (laughs) To quote um, the young boy in (laughs) The Princess Bride. (laughs) Elizabeth's hot, and that kiss was very much like, for a second, I was like, oh yeah, this was made in the UK, not the US. Like, it like took me a moment to realize that while watching it. Okay, okay, I have a question for you. What is the best on-screen kiss you can think of? Besides the episode of Too Hot to Handle that I watched yesterday with our friend Lazzie. Non-reality show. <laughs> no, I'm just, that was a, just a joke. I have recency bias. Like, this this one is winning for me. Like, this was, it was great. I loved it. But I also have a fish brain, so I don't remember things, like, after I've seen them. It's not Spider-Man. I'll just say that. Yeah. I, I The first thing that popped in my head was Spider-Man. I'm like, it's not that, but that's, like, the one. Uh, this is hard because, like, now I can't think of anybody kissing in movies. Like, I'm just <laughs> like, wait, what? Okay. Okay. So, all right. Let's use the Spider-Man kiss. We are talking about the upside down Tobes and Kiki kiss, right? Right. Nobody calls them Tobes. They just did. Okay? <laughs> I mean, we um, knew he meant. <laughs> so basically what I'm saying is there is a scale between hot and not kissing, right? The hottest one being the Spider-Man kiss and the nottest one being actual couple eventually, Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen in Time After Time, <laughs> where he like swallows her entire face. That's not but didn't we good didn't dick. we decide he was trying to be funny on purpose? Like we like read into that that he was trying to be funny on purpose. I don't know what y'all decided. <laughs> I think it was intentional. I decided that was very, very horror show. Oh now, wait, wait, wait. I have I have a good on screen kiss that we've all said was hot. It is recent, but it is the kiss between Matt Murdock and Jen mm. Walters. Oh yes. On I actually Gmail. almost said this like two minutes ago. So where does this kiss? Where where does where does Peter Cushing fall on the Spider-Man HG Wells? <laughs> this is gonna be something that we're gonna have to like trademark now. Like it's gonna be the official like Spider-Man <laughs> the Wells to, to Spider-Man. Wells, uh, kissing. I think we need a graphic. I need to come up with a title for this. Scale. Sorry, I couldn't come up with the word scale. I will make I will make a graphic. It's the Wells part. It's the Wells Parker scale. Do you say the lower one first in when you're describing that? Like, or is it mm. the Parker Wells scale? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, Wells came okay, first. Okay, we could do it in chronological. So the Wells Parker Parker uh, Wells sounds it's better fine. though. Like power Parker, Parker Wells. Wells. Yeah, Parker sounds Wells. Than Wells Parker. That's fine. Yeah. Where does this fall on the Parker Wells? See, here's the problem. Parker Wells Wells scale. Maybe that's just being a southerner do, and it pops out every so often. Spidey Wells. Parker Wells sounds I'm as a as a Yankee, I guess, I'm not having trouble with it. 
I think it's like an eight. Like it's like t- I think it's like towards the top. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I was thinking eight. So yeah. Okay. What do you think, Sam? Since you came up with this whole scale, I pass. I don't care. You can't pass. I don't care. <laughs> well, then why did you bring it up? Because you care, obviously. <laughs> Do you see any purple notes in this section? I don't care. <laughs> Even though you don't care, I appreciate you workshopping a scale name for us. I'm here for you. I appreciate the amount of also just sexual tension besides that kissing yes. scene in this. Like, to me, Elizabeth just really wants to get laid. And that's why she keeps being like, can I, like, help you out? Can I, like, when are we going to get married? There's a scene where she's, like, lying in bed, like clearly very frustrated because she's being neglected. I'm just saying. At one point, I thought she was going to straight up ask Victor if he and Paul were fucking in the laboratory. <laughs> right. So, you know. <laughs> you can take your production code and shove it. <laughs> I really also enjoyed her outfits. Like, there was a lot of bosom, but like, it just, they were also very nice and I wanted to wear those dresses. So much bosom in this film. And I have to say, Valerie Gaunt, who plays Justine in this, and she also plays the vampire bride at the beginning of Dracula. Oh, yes, I love her. She looks good in a low-cut nightgown. Yeah. There is one thing I do want to say. There is one thing. While you're talking about low-cut gowns and bosoms and all of these things, I think that perhaps the the Hammer production folks would have been a really good team of people knowing everything we know to be the ones who finally adapt the Percy Shelley masterpiece the boobs have eyes <laughs> thank you for bringing that up again Sam you're you're welcome I also think I just forgot how piercing blue Peter Cushing's eyes were like because this was the first one we watched and I was right. just like damn it's it's why Darth Vader couldn't stay mad at him yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, I can't stay mad at you Target I could force choke the shit out of you right here right now but I won't I also really dug his sideburns in this. I feel like that's the first time anyone has said that. Like, I really um, dug those I don't sideburns. think I felt <laughs> attracted to them, but I just thought that they were very worth mentioning because they were so large. They absolutely were. They were, they were straying into mutton chop territory. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they definitely were. On the opposite end of the hot scale... There's some great creature design for Lee in this. I was shocked because my I had never actually seen a picture of him in the creature makeup. And of course, my point of reference for film Frankenstein's is Karloff's version. What did we think about Lee's version of the creature? This was my first Frankenstein, like, ever. I guess I expected Frankenstein to be a little bit more zombie-like in how he moved around, and I found that Christopher Lee's acting was way more natural than that, and I appreciated that because I do not enjoy zombie stuff that much. You never saw the monsters when you were a kid? I did. I guess I didn't. That's where it comes from. Yep. Yeah. And I, I do plan on watching that new movie, which I heard pretty good things about. I think most of us of a certain age, whether we remember it or not, Herman Munster is our first introduction to Frankenstein. And he is, I can't remember the actor's name. Uh, he was in Car 54, Where Are You?, which they were also showing on Nick at Night back then, but very tall. And, you know, he's played as a shambling 
Yeah. Type. That's so his, it's easy but for his it, looks are ripped off of Karloff's. Yes. That actor yes. is that's also the, but, in a TOS episode, if I recall correctly, as a similar monster. I, I think we watched that one actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I watched it recently and was like, I think that's um, Lurch or whatever his name or I don't know. Maybe it was is Lurch Herman. from Adam's Herman. Family. Yeah, Lurch is the butler from the Adams Family. Herman oh. is the, the dad on the monsters. Maybe I the TOS guy was from the Adams Family. I don't know. I mean, the, the point is, like, a lot of us get that idea of Frankenstein's creature, monster, whatever you want to call him, from Herman Munster. <laughs> Where I certainly got it. Yeah, that's to me like thinking about it, how it defies expectations. It just made me wonder if that hadn't come from somewhere. I almost think it's scarier because like that scene where Justine like sees him in the corner and he like moves a lot faster than we would think that this type of creature should be able to because of our prior expectations. It was fun to see him kind of just in the, the woods, that one. It just felt very... I expected the whole movie to kind of be, like, in the house, so it was fun to see him, like, kind of venture out. Although I was worried for that grandpa. And the yeah, I boy. was too! That That is supposed to be a reference to the book, because there's a scene in the book where he, like, talks to someone who's blind, and, like, actually has a normal conversation with him because the blind man can't see what he looks like. So, Fred Gwynn, by the way, is Herman Munster, and Ted Cassidy... Is Lurch, who Ted was Cassidy's in the episode What Are Little Girls Made Up? Yes. Okay. So I got confused, but I was, yeah. I mean, they were both very tall people in monster theme shows. I mean, it could happen to the best of us. Oh, yeah. I don't feel bad about it. So- sorry to that man. I'm trying to remember the name of, of uh, Herman Munster's wife in comparison to Morticia Adams. And they're they're both very, okay, we'll talk about that when we get to Dracula. <laughs> anyway, I have notes. I have thoughts. So in this movie, anything that is vibes is probably gothic. Right. Everything else is horror. Horror, yeah. Fair. Absolutely fair. I feel like we've talked a lot about vibes in Spooktober so far. We, I mean, Spooktober, it should be mostly about vibes. So at the ending, like the climactic fight sequence at on the roof of the house where the creature is like threatening Elizabeth and... And Victor tries to shoot him, which is great because he shoots Elizabeth, which is like, what are you doing? Oops. What an idiot. Anyway, but he does do Sam's favorite thing. Keanu Reeves throws gun dot gif. <laughs> he shoots him twice and then throws the gun at uh, him. I love the throwing the gun bit because it's absolutely what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once a gun doesn't have bullets in it, what else is it useful for? To throw at someone. That's the only That's thing right. you can do with it. It was great. I loved it. Let's talk about the ending. Again, I don't think Hammer has a great record of endings based on my view of these three films. Is this ending supposed to tell us that Victor is delusional and this all never happened? Or that Paul and Elizabeth basically agreed to never tell anyone and to just let him get executed, which I think he deserves. I like that I don't know. So I actually liked this ending. I think it's fun when it's ambiguous. I would be satisfied with either way. Like, I I, I think them gaslighting him is kind of funny and he deserves it. And I also think it's kind of interesting if none of it happened. It totally happened. Here's why. Because to bring back Keanu Reeves again, that's right. 
I brought up John Wick, and now I'm going to bring up Speed. There's a recurring theme in Speed, the relationship between Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock's character. And the line goes, I have to warn you, I've heard relationships based on intense experiences never work. I feel like between The Curse of Frankenstein and The Curse of Frankenstein 2 Cruise Control, <laughs> Paul and Elizabeth will have broken up for this very reason. And so they it, it was real because they had to go through the trauma so this joke works. Okay. So they have to they had to go through the trauma so they could be together is what you're saying. And then eventually break up. Yeah, I mean, I think it really happened, too. I mean, I, I do like that the movie makes you kind of not know, because I do think they're, they wouldn't be together if it didn't happen. I will say, too, I'm glad Elizabeth survived this film. I wasn't sure if she was going to or not, for reasons. We've already started comparing the universal versions of these films, which came out in the U.S. in the 30s, so that's a very different cultural and chronological context than the 1950s UK. But I did want to compare some of these versions of these characters. I mean, obviously Lee plays all the monsters of the hammer horror, but we do have to compare him with Lugosi, who played Dracula in the 1931 Dracula, and Karloff, who played both the creature in the universal version of Frankenstein and the mummy in their version as well. So let's start with Lugosi versus Lee. I watched the Lugosi Dracula for the first time last night. So I actually watched both of these films for the first time this week. I really enjoyed um, Lugosi's performance as Dracula. I found it more interesting. Don't get me wrong. I really loved Lee in the role. Um, My Twitter avatar is his face uh, right now. But... (laughs) The 1931 film gave Dracula a lot more to do, I thought, than the Hammer horror film. So Lugosi had a little bit more stuff to do, and I enjoyed everything he was doing, With which Tessa informed me yesterday that Lugosi didn't speak English at the time that this was made, so he had to memorize all of his lines. And I think that worked in the movie's favor because he the performance was very different from s- someone who was... It helped have Dracula be distant from, like, humanity in a way because he was just saying lines that were, were memorized. That, that really worked for me. That all being said, I found the plot to be somewhat convoluted, so I just enjoyed the Hammer Horror film a lot more. Than the, like the, I was a little bored, like halfway through the Lugosi film. Bella Lugosi is Dracula. Period. Christopher Lee is not Dracula. Neither one of the Coppola versions are Dracula. Uh, Gary Oldman <laughs> is not Dracula. <laughs> Nicolas Cage, Coppola, is not Dracula. Might be pretty close. These are all good versions of Dracula, although I frankly don't care for the, the, the first Coppola version of Dracula. You see, I'm making a joke. I, I can tell you what get you're it? doing. Because yeah. Nicolas Cage is a Coppola. Because Nicolas Cage right. is a Coppola and he's right. going to and be Dracula, Dracula and Red right. I, I got it. <laughs> right. It doesn't mean that, that other people can't do it. And it's fine. Christopher Lee's good. And this one might be a better movie overall than the 31 Dracula. It really depends on what you want. As I said last week, 
1931 Dracula is the best of the Universal Monster films because it is vibes only. And That's and true. again, as I said last week, I don't understand why you don't think that because you are Dr. Vibes only. <laughs> I almost said Ms. Vibes only, but I got it right just in time. But that doesn't mean that this one isn't a better movie and that Lee isn't interesting in his own right. Not more interesting, just different interesting, but certainly better than Gary Oldman. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which you did not ask about, but I'm telling you. <laughs> I ran a poll yesterday asking, who is the sexier Dracula, Lee or Lugosi? And the poll said, of 23 votes, said that Lee was the sexier Dracula. It was a 57 to 43%. Which just means that 57% of you are wrong. <laughs> I actually asked, is this because he's tall? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely actually think it's Lugosi. I agree with you, Elise. I think what Lugosi's doing is really interesting, and he is given a lot more to do. I think he has more lines, actually, yeah, than that's Lee's pretty Dracula much what does. I meant. Yeah, his uh, little claws. You have to be double-jointed. Yeah, he... <laughs> I just... I, and he's so sexy in this. Like, I understand why women packed the theaters to, like, see this film. Like, I... You know, he's bringing the sexy back to the vampire. What do we think... And I know you haven't seen these films, Elise, so I'll direct this question to Sam. What do you think about Karloff, who is also very well-known for his monsters? I, oh, yeah, I'll take Christopher Lee any day. Over uh, Karloff. Yeah, Karloff is... I mean, the thing about Karloff is he's doing good body work, but Christopher Lee can do the body work and other things, right? Like, he is like a rounded, well-rounded, good actor, which is not to say that Karloff wasn't, but I think that Christopher Lee has more to offer than Boris Karloff. Also, according to my reference point for everything related to this, the Tim Burton Ed Wood film... Bela Lugosi hated Boris Karloff, and I love Bela Lugosi, so transitive property, Christopher Lee's better. <laughs> you're, basically, you're saying Lee is on Lugosi's side versus Karloff, because yeah. you love Bela Yeah, Lugosi. don't pit my two people against each other, Tessa. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you hate Joy? <laughs> I just think it's funny that because you take Lugosi's side in the famous feud between Lugosi and Karloff... That 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 must mean that Karloff is worse than Lee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why you don't see it that way. I... <laughs> What's so difficult? You you're a doctor. Come on. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> To finish this off before we actually start talking about the horror of Dracula, I will also say that I think it's hard for me to compare Wales Frankenstein to The Curse of Frankenstein because I think they're both really good in different ways. Like they're both looking at completely different versions of this story. I will say though that this version of The Mummy is better than The Universal Mummy. That doesn't mean it's good. It just means that it's better. That means I'm... I might not watch the Universal Mummy is what you're telling me. I mean, you did actually do a whole podcast episode, our very first October, on the Mummy, on the Universal Mummy. I need to listen to that episode too, but may- I, maybe I'll watch the Mummy anyway, just so I can see. Just so you can know. Yeah, I do plan to watch the Universal Frankenstein probably when we're done here, but maybe I'll wa- wait till tonight and I'll watch it right before the House of the Dragon. 
just just so you know, when you go into Frankenstein, and then you should also watch The Bride of Frankenstein, actually, because okay. it's also by Whale. Just so you know, Whale was incredibly gay. Oh, <laughs> so, that like, makes me... There's yeah, a lot happy. of people who read a lot of gay subtext in those. Pastor, did you see somebody... I, I This isn't a new thing, but I just found this out yesterday. Did you know that The Bride of Frankenstein was a ginger? I did not know that. Yeah, her wig. She's actually a redhead. That's yeah. interesting. Her wig is so famous, though. I know, but it was in black and white, so how would you know? Let's talk about the horror of Dracula, which came out the next year. So this was 1958. It's also known as just Dracula. Again, I I can't really tell why it has two different titles. It has to be distribution. Like, that's that's all I can think of why it would have these two different titles. If anyone knows, please let me know. When I went to go look up where it was playing, and HBO Max only had... the the horror of Dracula and I was like that's not what I want and then I looked further and I was like oh this is the correct cast this is exactly what I want this is what I am looking for so again like I feel like this story or the premise I should say of this story is pretty familiar this is based on Bram Stoker's Dracula Jonathan Harker goes to a castle in the middle of somewhere in eastern Europe probably Transylvania which is a real place and is hired by a mysterious person, Dra- Count Dracula, to do his taxes, basically, is what the actual story is, and realizes that something is incredibly wrong with his employer, and as he's investigating, some stuff happens. And Dracula, Dracula in this film anyway, wants to seek revenge on Jonathan Harker's friends and family. So that's kind of the, the setup of this particular film. In this film, it, was I right that he was coming as a librarian or something like that like he was yeah he so this film is interesting because Jonathan Harker actually kind of knows what he's dealing with when he comes to the castle like he says like he kind of pretends like he's not but then he says like in his diary like I'm gonna end this once and for all or whatever and it's been it becomes clear that he's been working with Van Helsing on this like anti-vampire project but in the book and in most adaptations, he's completely clueless. Like he has no idea like what's going on. So like Keanu Reeves played him in the Francis Ford Coppola. I oh, mean, yeah. you don't get more clueless than nineties era Keanu Reeves. People criticize Keanu Reeves' performance, but honestly, if you read the book, that is Jonathan Harker. Like he is like a very clueless, Whoa. very dumb, <laughs> very spacey kind of character. Since we're talking about Keanu Reeves, <laughs> since I brought him up again for the third time, I think. And, and I've also brought up the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. So just to advance the plot of the, the Hammer film along just a little bit, we see that uh, one of the major departures from Stoker's original story and the 31 Browning film is we see the vampirus, if you will show up and and basically try to take Harker down and she gets scolded and and Harker kills her like in the grape like mm-hmm. idiot mick idiot you go for the head one first everybody knows this but he decides to go for the for the woman first because he's sexist i guess and her screaming wakes up dracula okay but anyway so just to skip ahead and talk about that this really bothered me. First of all, going back to the idea that this film does things a little bit differently than the Stoker original text and the Browning adaptation of it. It is 2022. It is well over a century. It's almost been a century and a quarter, I believe. 
I think we could admit that Bram Stoker is not a good writer. I think we can just admit that he's See, lucky. I love the original Dracula. Sure, fine, for whatever. reasons that I will explain after you're done. But more importantly, having seen the Francis Ford Coppola movie, I don't like it that well. But I have to tell you, any version of Dracula that I've seen since then, if it isn't populated by succubus vampiruses, <laughs> I don't know what the point is. So my question about the horror of Dracula is... What in the Keanu Reeves' version of Jonathan Harker is up with the absence of succubus vampiruses? Yeah, in the book and in the film, there should be three brides, right? Succubus like, vampiruses. Yeah, and there's just the one. I don't think I knew what I was missing until I watched the Lugosi one last night, and they had the three, like, you know, Dracula S's, I will call them. there's a reason that the vampires are the sexy monsters yeah you wouldn't know that to watch this movie well can we also say that his goal in this film is to like get another sexy vampire like i mean that's that seems to be his primary motivation he He, like loses the one he has okay okay and then he tries to get like cousin lucy or whoever that lady was and then so elise i will i will grant you the christopher lee of it all. This is where a couple of years ago I would have said I'm going to make the aggressively hetero claim that I'm not interested. I'm only interested in the vampirises. Clearly that's wrong, but I I don't know how to uh, aggressively gay, aggressively lesbian. I don't you're I a, don't care about Dracula as a sex symbol, okay? <laughs> I don't care don't care. You're a lesbian. That's all you have to say. That's that's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> aggressively lesbian here. This is this is what I want. So uh, on the uh, a different level, I care about Dracula <laughs> and the vampresses. Right. Um, very very bisexual over here. <laughs> which is which is sad because because I will sad say that Francis. I'm bisexual. Sam? No 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 not that. <laughs> I'm just that's joking. not sad. What's sad is the original. So like we get to see him in his Gary Oldmanness eventually yeah. in the Francis Ford Coppola, but boy is that an unattractive vampire at the beginning of that movie. Right, because oh, he's super Lord. old and he's like feeding off of Harker and he doesn't know it. Yeah, and he becomes I, younger every time you see him. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it makes sense as a filmmaking choice, but as a sexy choice, it's bad. So my thing about Dracula, the novel, is that it's an epistolary novel in which you basically get, like, the all, the entire novel is letters and records. So you don't actually get, like, people talking to each other in the novel. It's everyone writing and telling them, like, oh, this happened to me, like, or this is weird. And the really, the way that I think it works well for the novel is that, and I think it makes it scarier, is that nobody has all the pieces of the puzzle except for you as the reader. So, like, everybody is like, oh, this weird thing happened to me. Like, that was weird. And then, like, the next letter is like, that's strange. This happened to me. Like, and so, like, you know, you see Dracula kind of at the, like, fringes of everything. Mm -hmm. And that works well for a novel, but I don't think it works very well for a film. No, I mean, the reason I don't think that, I think that Stoker, it's better better to be lucky than good, is that I think that this epistolary format works uniquely well for this story. I don't know if he got lucky and put those two pieces together or if that's craft. It doesn't really matter. The point is, it doesn't work when you film it. The reason that the 1931 movie is so good is vibes. Right. 
that's why this movie doesn't work because it doesn't do the vibes as well. I mean, it's a good movie because of the acting. Like, they, they do good stuff, but the frame of the story isn't going to work. I mean, Coppola adds a bunch of stuff, if I recall, uh, yeah. to pad he out the story. He adds more of a romance between Mina and right. Dracula right. as well. And, and that's what makes that movie good if you think it's good. I mean, it's fine. But there's not enough there there to make a movie out of Stoker's book. You haven't read the book, Elise, but what did you like? What did you think about this film as a plot, as a story? I found that it was extremely simple, and I don't mean that negatively. I meant for me, it did work on a vibes level because there wasn't too much for me to think about, and I was just kind of watching what they were showing me. I think I might have been more frustrated if I had read the book or seen other adaptations prior, but because I didn't, I didn't have all of those feelings. And it just really worked, and I actually think this was my favorite of the three films that we watched. I actually really liked this film. I just really wanted more of it. It is like the shortest yeah. of the three films. And I yes. I was just like, I want more Lee on screen. I want more development of these characters. You don't even have to like make the plot more complicated. I just like I wanted there to be more romance there. I mean, even though Lee is very sexy and there's that like really great scene where he's like rubbing his face against Mina's before he like bites her. So I wanted like more Mina in this. I wanted more Van Helsing, like having like a romance. Like I, you know, I just feel like if you're going to do vampires, like do them, like do it all the way, you know. And the funny thing is that this movie is was like six or seven minutes longer than the Bela Lugosi film, and I still feel like we got more Dracula in the other film. Um, just real quick about the vampresses, I will say that I really enjoyed the pink dress that the one vampress lady was wearing at the beginning of the film. It had like a like a wench kind of feel to it where she had like <laughs> the belts and stuff like holding up her uh her breasts and it was very hot and I was like oh I love you oh you're a vampire I love you more maybe now I didn't realize that it was the same actor that played Justine until you said I did like that the main protagonist of the story is a younger Van Helsing because in the book and in the Todd Browning Dracula, he's an old like professor who's like answering a lot of these questions for the young men who are going to go out to hunt Dracula. But I actually really liked him as like a young doctor who's like doing detective work. What did you all think of Cushing's performance? I, I, I agree. I, I liked that. It felt very... Um investigative in a way where he was trying to find out you know where where's Dracula sleeping um which is a whole other thing that was kind of funny that I'm sure that we will get to but yeah I really liked it he seemed just really into it he had so many outfits in this film like at one point I think Mina actually says can you come look at Lucy and he's like of course but I have to change and he like changes out (laughs) of his smoking jacket into like a completely different outfit I wonder what the um the costume budget was for this film. Probably pretty high, actually. So Peter Cushing died in 1994. I really wish Lucas hadn't blown him up in the first movie, because like, I, I he may be doing some of the best work in the first Star Wars movie. Again, the Eleven Days of Star Wars coming soon to monkey off my backlog. No, I just I really just keep thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking. 
What if Christopher Lee was Darth Vader? What if Tarkin... And I mean, I know they digitally reanimated him for uh, Rogue One, which we will discuss. I'm not going to do the bit again, but we will discuss that soon. I mean, I know they've done it in the uh, the animated ones too, but uh, that character is so good because it's Peter Cushing. And I think if I've learned nothing from watching these Hammer horror films other than this, which is not true, I've learned plenty. It's really understanding how much he brings to that role. I will say this. Peter Cushing brings more to Star Wars than Alec Guinness does. Well, I think he took it more seriously than Alec he does. Guinness does. Well, and, and, and that makes me wonder, too. Like, if Alec Guinness had slummed it with Hammer Horror and understood that acting is acting and it's a craft, you know, instead of just a hoity-toity art... I said that. I probably shouldn't have. That I mean, sounded no, terrible. I, I, I'm in qu- agreement with that, actually. Well, but that's the point. It, 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 re- it reveals that Cushing really takes pride in what he does. And it's not really an issue of slumming it. It's an issue of happy to be here, doing best friend work with his best friend. And you can really tell years later in Star Wars that that is something that is a real approach to filmmaking that has been cultivated over the years. So, I mean, The Mummy's a terrible movie, but he does great work in it. Yeah, like... I mean... It's true. That's what I think of Peter Cushing. And I, I really said nothing about this film. Well, I just told you a bunch of things. <laughs> yeah, about Peter Cushing. I will say I love Very the scene. Very modernist take. The scene with him that sticks out the most for me is... I don't know why, but it's the scene where he wraps his coat around the little girl, Tanya, in the graveyard and gives her the crucifix. Like, it's just so, like, this character is so, like, anti-vampire, and he's, like, telling everybody the hard truths about what's going on, but he's just, like, so, like, kind and gentle in that moment, and it just, like, it gives this character another dimension. Like, that's the thing, is, like, every scene, it's like you learn something new about this character, and it was actually really sweet and cute, I thought. What if, instead of the Book of Boba Fett, we had the Book of Tarkin? (laughs) I actually would have found that way more interesting. I really enjoyed um claudia gray's young adult star wars novel lost stars which i don't know if you've read that sam but it's wonderful and tarkin is in that slightly at the beginning and a little bit throughout and it's actually a young adult episodes of clone wars too yeah so this so lost stars is a book that takes place during the original trilogy but the two main characters are not characters that we have heard of prior to this book and they're on opposite sides of like the war and they grew up together and it's just really interesting and there's like a little there's touchstones from the original trilogy so you know kind of like where you are in the timeline but the main characters are all new and I just that book is great actually I want to reread it but, like, I do remember being, like, excited to have Tarkin in, in that book. I've read the James Luceno Tarkin novel. Mm-hmm. It's his origin story, basically. Oh. And I love how we're just talking about Star Wars now. I mean, was there any doubt that that was going to happen? <laughs> well, but here's the thing, though. Think about how much screen time Peter Cushing has in the first Star Wars movie. And think about the fact that his voice and his cheekbones 
for however many minutes he appears in that movie, we're still talking about this character in 2022. We're talking about a character who has, I don't know, we'll time it, but I bet it's like 15 minutes of screen time in this movie. He's been dead for almost 30 years, and we are still talking about his influence. Accent and cheekbones. Accent, cheekbones, and piercing blue eyes. That's, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, so like you go back to a movie that he's actually the star of. I, yeah, he's going to make the movie. And oh, he does. Absolutely. absolutely. So there you go. I brought it back. You're welcome. Thank you. Can I say it? Yes. Can I say it? Yes. This, this thing right here? Uh-huh. <laughs> blue fur. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> the blue fur lady. Blue fur. They don't actually call her that in this Yeah, film. but, well, and that was really funny because I was like, it, she's the, I was like, I want to say it's blue fur. And you're like lady of the night. And I'm like, no, it's blue it's fur. It's blue fur. Yeah. So in the book. <laughs> My brain cannot hang on to anything. But I remembered blue fur lady. <laughs> so in the book. Sounds like, sounds like she was in college at the Ivy League with like squee and. <laughs> oh, God. So. <laughs> So in the book, she, uh, Lucy, when she dies, like they bury her, but then they start hearing about this lady who basically is like luring children to their death. And the children call her the blue fur lady because they all have their accents and it's supposed to be the beautiful lady, but it's the blue fur lady. First thing is like Lucy and Mina are switched. In the book and in the Todd Browning movie, he does kill Lucy after visiting her many times. Right, but Lucy is Mina in this book, or in this movie. Yeah. Right, she's the one... That was engaged to Harker. Yes. Because Mina is the one engaged to Harker in the book. Right, so that's weird. I mean, Harker's also dies in the prologue of this film. Well, fair, but the point is that in the original Stoker, Lucy's Lucy's the whore and Mina's the angel. Right, because so, Lucy is proposed to by three different men in the Right, so the, the angel, book. so yeah. Lucy is now the angel, and the angel becomes the blue for lady. Yeah. Ooh. It is interesting. I just thought when you said that she was proposed to three different times, like, is Lucy the, like, Scarlet Hazeltine of this film? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <One, two, three. laughs> absolutely. Yeah, she's supposed to represent really like this middle class femininity because there's a big part of Dracula that's about middle classdom versus the aristocracy because Count Dracula is like this relic of a long time of, you know, class. And she is like the new money woman, you know, who like doesn't have a title, but she's very, very rich. So there's there's kind of that going on in this as well. One of the things I wanted to bring up because I I love vampires and I've written a lot about vampires and they're amazing is like vampires and penetration, the the act of like biting. It works as a metaphor for the threat of homosexuality. Like that's a way that vampires have often been interpreted. Like it's horrifying that they bite anyone, but it's especially horrifying when they bite men, right? Because it's it's like a man being penetrated by another man. We can kind of see that in the film, too, because Jonathan Harker has like a horrible reaction to being bitten at the beginning of the of the film. But we also get to see Van Helsing's horror at almost being bitten by Dracula, who's definitely doing it in a very sexy way. Like Christopher Lee is like is like, you know, going to sex up Van Helsing and Van Helsing is horrified by it. 
so there's that. But there's also a lot about like colonization of Britain by brown people, especially. I think all those themes actually do come through in this film. And I was surprised, um, especially because the film is so simple, like you said. There's a there, but there's it's there. It's there beneath the surface, and I appreciate that. The other thing too is why does Mina survive this film? I think it's because there's no code restrictions because she clearly has sex with Dracula in this film. I will say that I didn't know who was supposed to survive and not survive, so I didn't think of it that way. I mean, Mina survives in the book, but this film really emphasizes the idea that what Dracula is doing is sex like you know he's clearly having sex with both Lucy and then Mina like she even has that like glow when she comes back and she's like happy the scene where she the scene where they find her being bitten she's like thrown across the bed like there's a lot of that like sexual imagery there and I think if this film had been made in the U.S. she would have died because of the code because she's married right 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 somebody else it probably is. I would imagine it is. I'm not going to lie, though. I don't think I've ever laughed as hard as when it was revealed that Dracula was just chilling in the basement of the house. That, that the got me, The call was too. literally coming from inside the house. <laughs> I won't go through the whole thing, but there are moments where Tessa and I recall the How I Met Your Mother episode where, where Marshall and Lily get married. And there's a scene where they're talking about the solution to the fact that he's just shaved the middle of his head. So if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. I but do know. When this happened, I looked over at Tess and I said, you're worried that you can't figure out how he's getting in the house and you're telling me you didn't check the basement? That's not <laughs> where you started? Why are you so bad at this you you check the attic in the basement first yeah always there's a creepy dude who lives underground 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 basement nope don't see the connection i also (laughs) love that apparently he just dug a whole grave in their backyard and nobody noticed this because he like throws her into the grave while he's running away was it winter time maybe they just didn't go outside much (laughs) (laughs) i do love i i laughed really hysterically at that scene as well when it just is revealed that he was in the basement because was it i i i feel bad i got the women kind of mixed up um, sorry, well, that's please. the film doing that for you. It's not yeah. Your fault. So like, I don't remember which one, but like one of them was like saying something about like don't go in the basement. I don't know whatever it was, but it just was that was Mina. Re- Thank you. That's what I thought. It was revealed so nonchalantly, and then Helsing just ran, and I. It was so. He was just doing a lot, and it was just really great. He's not in the coffin. He. He's not. He, he's gonna be right behind you. You know that right? <laughs> you're going to turn around and he's going to be there. Be oh, there. Look, there he is. Yeah. I love that Christopher Lee, it almost makes it more comical. <laughs> he just sticks his head in and sees Aha! Van and then just like runs away <laughs> and lo- like closes the door on him. Like, has he just been wandering around the house this whole time? I like, hope so. like eating snacks and stuff. Like I don't, 
<laughs> it's a reverse Home Alone. Like he set up paint cans and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the snacks are just like rats in the basement because he probably wouldn't have like chips or whatever. Like he's got like a Bloody Mary. He's just drinking it, having a good just time. Chilling. He's just got chill. blood in it though. I mean, Wait, like it's not what? tomato juice. Okay, it's blood. Real, real question. What toppings do you think Dracula would have on his Bloody Mary? That's a great question. Well, I mean, blood sausage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is a that right. Works. Do you think it would? Just I be mean, like... well, the thing about it is, is like he's gonna go heavy on the celery salt because he can't use garlic. Yeah. That's celery important. salt is really good. I don't even like celery, but I love celery seed and celery salt. I think there's some greenery. The typical green. He's just not gonna eat it. That's it's fair. He's going to pull that out. It's but a, he needs it for like the vibe. It's the aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Bloody Mary is a very aesthetic drink. Can I also say that despite the toppings that Dracula would have, I definitely think that his glass is like boob shaped. Oh, oh. Here's the, a sexy glass. Well, no, no, no. Here's the other thing. To circle back, though, to the question, I do think the Bloody Mary would be super spicy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Because, like, I don't, you know, we think about vampires and we think about how they live off of blood. So I don't even know if there's vodka in it. I don't, I don't, it, let, let's be perfectly honest. It could just be straight up blood. I would assume it's just blood. Well, except for the addition of, like, Tabasco, you know, super Yeah, yeah, spice. no, because, I meant, because he doesn't need liquor. No. He doesn't drink wine. He very famously says he yeah, doesn't that, drink wine. That's right. So. But, but yes. the point is, like, the man enjoys spice. Is all I'm yeah, saying. No, I like, get it. like he is very not British in this way. Oh, I said it out loud. Yeah. British people don't like spicy things. And and I can say that because Great British Bake Off just fucking destroyed so many cultural it just took let me oh, do we have Mexican cultural stereotypes? Well, let me tell you. I'm going to nuke those and come up with so many better ones. So, yeah, <laughs> British people don't like spicy stuff. That's no worse than anything you people just did on that episode. I have heard through the grapevine about the episode. So much cringe in that episode. Oh, that, ha- that was more horrible than this. This That was yeah. more of a horror movie than this one. Absolutely. So uh, the last two things I wanted to talk about, because we talked about creature effects for Curse of Frankenstein my two favorite images from this film were the first one, which is the most famous one of the opening shot of the coffin with Dracula's nameplate on it and then the blood drips on it, which I thought was very well done. Um, I also thought the creature effects at the end when Dracula dies were actually pretty good, like where he's like slowly crumbling to dust. It kind of reminded me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when um, yeah. what's his face was a Julian, like drinks from the wrong. Julian Glover. I don't remember what his character's when, name was. W- you mean the part where she chose poorly? Yes. Her name was Elsa. No, no, no. The person that Julian oh, Glover's right, 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 character right, 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 right. was the one yeah, that Yeah, Elsa doesn't drink, drink from it. She's the I one who I just didn't remember is... what his character's name was. So I called him Julian, which is his actual first Nazi name. McNazi, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it reminded me of that where he like crumbles. Is it worse to drink from the wrong grail and like have your face melt or like be so selfish that you fall down a bottomless chasm because you couldn't save yourself and wanted to reach for the grail? Which one's worse? I don't know, but I think it's weird because Julian Glover's character is like just trusting that Elsa made the right choice. So maybe that is worse because you're basing it off of someone else's choice. 
I was I was trying to think about what that reminded me of, and I think that's the answer. I think it's Last Crusade. It it kind of reminded me like his his kind of melted face reminds me of like a almost like a Mike Myers kind of you know like classic horror disfigured. But you could still see his eyes. Like that's the thing that got me is that like the, his eyes are the last things to like go, and Christopher Lee has such expressive eyes that it's just yeah. like I don't know. To me, that was like. Really well done. I think, yeah, he does have very expressive eyes. So does Cushing, which means any one of them, either one of them could be the star of The Poops Have Eyes. <laughs> oh, my God. We, we can't note. do Spooktober for very much longer. No, the episodes are going to be like three hours long I at know. this point. <laughs> so let's talk about Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, who were best friends, as has been mentioned before. Their friendship is legendary. It lasted almost 40 years They officially met on the set of Frankenstein. I did not know this before I did research for this episode. They were in Laurence Olivier's 1948 Hamlet production together previously, but they didn't meet because they were in completely different scenes um, from each other. But apparently on the set of Frankenstein, Lee barged into Cushing's dressing room to protest not having any lines as the creature because he doesn't speak in that film. And Cushing responded, you're lucky I read the script. And they were both (laughs) friends from like that moment on, apparently. Like, they were just immediately best friends. I love that. They appeared in 22 films together. That doesn't count films where they weren't on screen together. I also have in here that they were both friends also with Vincent Price. And I didn't know that before reading all this stuff. But they starred with him in Scream and Scream Again, which is a film that I haven't seen. But now kind of want to, to see all three of them in that film. But apparently Lee really admired the fact that Cushing memorized not only his lines for the film, but everyone else's lines as well. Like that's what he did in order to really like get into the film, which can you imagine Cushing memorizing all of the lines of A New Hope, even though he was only in it for 15 minutes? Well, I will say, I can say something about this. Like I'm not comparing myself to Peter Cushing at all, but but this is a strategy that a lot of, up and comers actors do and and here's one reason why so i was in a play and i was an an ensemble cast member i had a couple of lines but i knew some of the other ensemble lines and when one of the actors was too hungover to show up guess who got twice as much time on stage that night because i knew the lines Makes I'm sense. just saying, I'm not saying that's what Cushing did or why that started, but... But you think it's, it's like a stage It's a much thing? less altruistic thing than you're saying. I do I do think, and I would be interested to know Cushing's stage experience, but yes, I do think that happens a lot more on stage. I mean, we have understudies for a reason, but... Well, he was a TV actor before yeah. Hammer. This is like the opposite of method acting. Yeah. Because we know is the worst form of acting. When you're a method actor, you're only concerned with your own stuff, right? Which mm-hmm. is very, very selfish. It's kind of hard to do a good job of preparing and not learn other people's lines. If you're right? going to be like on screen with them and share that, right. create that thing together, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, I it mean, makes there's, sense there's, to learn there's, your scene partner's role as well. It's anticipation. It's timing. There's a lot of good reasons. Which just tells me that Cushing was a professional. Right. And was good at what he did. And Maybe, that seems yeah. to be why Lee admired him. How the hell did he end up in Star Wars? I, I know, right? Uh, I am a famous screen actor for years and years. 
that guy's a carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of also reminded me of scenes from uh, Drive My Car, where he's in the car listening to the tapes of the play, and he's hearing everybody do their lines, which I thought was really cool, and then saying his lines back. Apparently, both Cushing and Lee loved Looney Tunes. Like, that was another thing that they, like, bonded over, and Lee would do impressions of Sylvester the Cat to make Cushing laugh on set. In fact, I think it's it was Cushing's daughter that actually talked about this, that that she remembered like him doing a good Sylvester the Cat impression. And once they went to a movie theater to watch a Looney Tunes cartoon and they were asked to leave because they were laughing too hard, which I think is like the best story about the two of them. I think that's the best story of any friendship ever that I've heard. Um, I would love to be asked out of a Looney Tunes movie theater because I was laughing too much like that would be me because I often am the person laughing too much in the theater like that is my role like I will hear myself and everyone else will be quiet I I hope that happens to me sometime (laughs) with your best friend (laughs) you mentioned that Lee was in a, a heavy metal band which I don't know that much about but apparently Cushing also really loved Lee's singing voice so I kind of want to know if Cushing listened to Lee's heavy metal work I'm sure, I think I mentioned it when we were doing James Bond, when Lee covered, uh, played Scaramanga, which I can't believe we didn't mention until now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But. Who is this James Bond of which you speak? (laughs) I'm not sure. Uh, Basically, I think, I don't know that much about it, but I think Christopher Lee, like, did his own, like, I think it was like a. It might have been a solo project, but he has two full albums and then a bunch of other songs and one of, or he has two Christmas EPs. One's called A Heavy Metal Christmas and the other one's called A Heavy Metal Christmas 2. (laughs) T-O-O, not T-W-O. But yeah, he has four albums, sorry, not two, and the last two are... So these are really funny. The first one that came out in 1998 is called Christopher Lee Sings Devils, Rogues, and Other Villains. The next one is called Revelation in 2006. And then the ones I'm more interested in because they are so dramatic. In 2010, he has an album called Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross. And in 2013, there's Charlemagne, the Omens of Death. I love it. I just... Of course, this would have been way after Cushing died, but that's amazing. All of them were after, because the first one was in 1998. It's really funny. Like, they have him as... I look at the musicians on Charlemagne, the Omens of Death, and, like, the singers. Like, it says Christopher Lee as Charlemagne. (laughs) Like, so it's just very (laughs) cinematic, even for a musical album. I think of this in a very Looney Tunes way, which is appropriate because they loved Looney Tunes. But I think about Cushing on his deathbed and Christopher Lee there with him. And Cushing says, after I'm gone, you know what I think you should do? And Christopher Lee says, what? Peter Cushing says, heavy metal. (laughs) And Christopher Lee says, as a bit? And Cushing goes, no, for real. And dies. I do want to say that while I said it was like a solo project, he had many people that worked on it with him. Um, 
singers and musicians, but I think he might have been the arranger of a lot of it. I don't want to discount everyone else's work, but yeah, I, I, not to, you can like put that in wherever because Sam, I, I really hope that happened too. It's not like Attack of the Clones where I do want to like put down everyone else's effort other than Christopher Lee. It's, that's. I can't wait for the three of us to talk about that film. I know. I know you can't wait. Well, I mean, that brings up the interesting thing that I'm pretty sure that they named him Count Dooku in Star Wars because of his role as Count Dracula. I mean, come on. He even wears a cape. I don't know if either of you read it or I guess listen to it because it's an audio play. But there is an audio drama play of it's called Jedi Lost and it's about Count Dooku originally as, you know, a Jedi and what causes him to leave the Jedi Order, and it's very interesting, and I very much enjoyed it, and highly recommend. Well, we're going to see him, the character, I mean, in Tales of the Jedi, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. Well, this should interest you too, Elise. Their birthdays were one day apart. Cushing was born on May 26th and Lee on May 27th, and they often exchanged gifts and letters and celebrated together. I'm not as up on my astrology as you are, but what sign were they? They were both Gemini, which is interesting. They so what were you're telling twins. me is they were twinsies. Aww. Yes. <laughs> it's very fitting. They were both offered the part of Dr. Loomis in Halloween, which I feel like would have been amazing. Who actually plays that role? I've never seen it. Yeah, I'm going to say it because I was right. Like I waited until you looked it up. But yeah, it's Donald Pleasant. Funnily enough, Malcolm McDowell actually took on the role in 2007. For the new ah yes, one half of the Wells Parker. I feel like Halloween, and because of John Carpenter, has a lot of references to horror. And I feel like if one of them had played Doctor Loomis, that would have been yet another reference. You mean you mean John Carpenter, the director whose film we talked about last week? Yes, I've only seen one John Carpenter movie. I think um, in the Mouth of Madness, which I did not like because I was forced to watch it. Which is why I'm not into horror, though slowly getting into it a little bit more. I feel like horror is like any broad genre. Like there's so many like nooks and crannies in it. Like you will find something that you like. But it's just that people, when they think of horror, they think of a very specific kind of horror. And that's not for everybody. So I totally get that. I am severely bummed that even though Christopher Lee was not in Star Wars until after Peter Cushing died that we never had like a Tarkin Dooku scene. I did read that they were the characters were in an, both in an episode of the Clone Wars, but they did not have a scene together in in an episode, but Right, and they weren't voiced by obviously by were, Cushing exactly, or Lee. Exactly. Yes. So, but it still would have been Yeah, cute. well that would have been really cool like to have a little scene with the two of them. I'm sure they met like at some point, right? Like Chronologically, it makes sense. So let's move on to our last film, The Mummy from 1959. There's no curse or horror of The Mummy. It's just The Mummy. It's just horrible. Yeah. I think if you have been paying attention, you'll notice that this is our least favorite one. So there's reasons for that, I think. The main premise of this is very similar to the Universal Mummy premise. Peter Cushing plays John Banning, who is an archaeologist. He and his father find a lost tomb of an Egyptian princess and that triggers the resurgence of a mummy who is guarding the tomb, a living dead mummy 
who seeks revenge for the violation of of her tomb. I'm not going to lie. I think that the only good mummy movie is the Brendan Fraser one. All the other mummy movies I've seen are boring, including this one. <laughs> Hard agree. I want to say Bay, right? M- yeah. Mehmet Bay. Mehmet Bay. I think this is really fun because we watched this movie and then I went directly to the computer to start editing the episode that came out last week. Let me lay out the timeline for you. So a week ago, today is Sunday, a week ago when we recorded with Melissa, we had a conversation in which the Indiana Jones, it belongs in a museum, fortune and glory set of quotes was invoked. And, you know, we we pointed out at the time that that's not even right. We shouldn't they don't even belong in a museum. In fact, what I said was they belong right in the ground where they are. The next day, we watched the episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver that had premiered the night before, that same day. The topic of that was the British Museum and taking <laughs> things away. It, it ended up, it was it was a very good I mean, it was a very good episode, and there's a very good bit with uh, Kamal Nanjani at the end. <laughs> where they do the reverse, like where they, he creates a museum where they're stealing things from white people, like part of the Stonehenge. We've got your like... Stonehenge. You're not even taking care of it. Yeah. We'll give it back to you once you give us back our stuff. It's so great. And then, you know, this movie. yesterday, Saturday, we watched The Mummy, and there is that discourse uh, where uh, Mohammed Bey says you shouldn't be putting these things in the bridge so people can come look at them. They're not yours. And I'm like, what a week. Have either of you been to the British Museum? No. No. I have been once and it was extremely uncomfortable. We didn't go for like a specific reason. We just like needed to like kill some time and that day and um I looked at an exhibit about timepieces throughout history, and that was interesting, but I have to tell you, I just didn't really want to be there that much. It just felt very icky. I was just surprised that this film was willing to have that conversation. Yeah. Because the Universal one was not willing to have that conversation. Which is interesting, because the Universal... Yeah, because the Universal one is made in the U.S., so like you feel like they could have... They could have been a we little bit more critical. No, we, no, we definitely yeah. do not. But we, I feel like because the U.S. is not where the British Museum is located, it could have been a little bit more critical. And it's I haven't seen that film yet. And as we discussed earlier, I may or not ever watch it. But so having this movie be made in the U.K. It is interesting to me as well that they were so they were being critical. Okay, I have a question. If your beef is with the British and the British Museum for this thievery. Which one is the better plot? Option A is Mehmet Bey bringing a a cursed mummy and sending him after people. Or is it Killmonger breaking in and stealing the stuff back? I mean, Killmonger... I'm just saying, I mean, like, it's the, right? I mean, like. 
Michael Bay Jordan. Come on. Michael Bay Jordan instead of Mehmet Bay. Yeah. <laughs> See what just happened. Well, there? also Mehmet Bay is not played by an Egyptian person, so that's he kind of problematic. I mean, again, this film wants to have this conversation, but at the same time, most of the cast is not people of color. And this story, which I think is kind of inherently problematic to begin with, relies on a fetishization of Egyptian culture mm-hmm. and the idea that, like, oh, like, uh, these people... I think Peter Cushing's character actually says, like, oh, well, your country's used to violence Isn't at, like, one point. And so it's, like, this idea that they are, like, they have this ancient history and it's mystical and it's magical and we can kind of make a story about whatever we want out of it instead of, like, actually respecting this as a culture. Isn't the British Museum a fetishization oh, yeah. of... Every single other culture. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I not the so. people. No, just, just their the culture. Stuff. Yeah, just the yeah. stuff. It probably doesn't care much about the people at all. <laughs> yeah, no, Hence not at the all. Stuff being in the museum. I wish I could say that John blowing up the tomb after robbing it wasn't real, but actually, this is was very common for British archaeologists in the nineteenth century. Like, I was actually really surprised to see that also portrayed in this because we don't talk about it. We tend to be like, oh, these people are archaeologists. They're, of course, they're respectful. They were not. People genuinely used dynamite to unearth stuff in Egypt, and it was horrible. So, you know, it it is interesting that this movie wants to have this conversation, but also, like, wants to have its cake by doing all of the Egyptian, like, fetishization. Yeah, I definitely don't think it gets that many cookies. You know what this movie does do well, though? Humor. Yes. This This is the funniest. But not intentionally. Probably. (laughs) Probably. You don't know that. My favorite thing about this movie was the mummy just, like, bursting through shit. Like, (laughs) he he chooses a different mode of entry every time he comes into that house. Like, he comes through the door the first time. He comes through a window. I was expecting him to just come through a wall at one point. What if the Kool-Aid man had, like, a Halloween short where he just had, like, mummy (laughs) laughing around him? But it was still red because, obviously... My favorite part, too, is that after he bursts through the window and, like, makes a door through the window, the rest of the characters start using that window as a mode of coming in and out of the house. I mean, you don't have to open it. It's already open. That's what I said. <laughs> Damn, it just been done already. we are very sometimes. One thing that really bothered me in this film was like they have you know the little bit of violence at the beginning and then there's like a whole flashback of like how did we get here the flashback is so long which is fine but also it's not fine because they voiced over like there was a narration over the entire flashback and I can't deal with that either show me what's happening or tell me like don't do both I can't deal I can't deal with it the narration was so it was way too much I hated it. I loved how the movie was so long. It's an hour and a half. I loved how the movie was so long. They had to recap the beginning of the movie at the end of the movie. It's like, yeah. wow, you think this movie is that bad, huh? Yeah, they really were stretching a very short plot into a long movie on this. And so there are clearly stuff that they're just kind of putting in to like make the runtime longer. I feel like it could have been under an hour. Oh, yeah, 100%. 
I do think that Christopher Lee as the mummy, I, I did not have high expectations for the the character, like the creature makeup in this because I was like the mummy, like he's just wrapped in bandages. I actually think this works really well for Christopher Lee because of his eyes, because he has such expressive eyes. He's able to like convey a lot through those eyes, even though he doesn't have any speaking lines as the mummy. He does in the flashback, but he doesn't in the in the actual mummy. I mean, you could see like the pain and like the anguish and like the fact that he's still in love with this woman who looks like this white woman that he just met. It's very confusing how that works. Was she reminding him of the person he was in love with? Was that what it was? I couldn't even follow, honestly. It's the old, when you wear your hair that way, you look just like the person I used to be obsessed with. Which, by the way, one more time, going back to the Tim Burton Ed Wood movie, this is very similar to the, you, your dentist, looks just like Bella Lugosi from the eyes up. It's a real thing that happened. That is a real thing that happened. I I love this though. I like I I just put your hair back down. He's getting choked out. He's like, by the way, that makes two times we've seen Peter Cushing get choked out. The first time is when he gets force choked. <laughs> Actually, no, he doesn't get force choked. No, That's no, sad. That's he, gets, sad. he gets choked it's out because twice of the in this blue movie, eyes, though. as Tessa said earlier. The the blue eyes make it so he doesn't get force choked. I oh yeah. that makes sense. You can't be mad at him, remember? You cannot be mad. I just I loved it though. It was like I love how she runs with it though. She's like, put him down. And he's like, okay. It, he okay, this is gonna be a really weird connection. But what happens in that moment when he she's like, stop, put him down. And then like later when he's like walking her through the bog and she's like, put me down. The look on his face is very similar to a dog's that doesn't want to put something down. Like it's very stop like, it. no, I don't want to. And then fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wasn't done playing with that. <laughs> I have a real question that is, I don't know if it's me not following the movie you know that whole hour and 23 minutes or whatever it was was too much or I guess it was longer was Peter Cushing playing both a character and that character's dad in two different scenes like in the flash like am I miss did I miss something or add something to this movie that was not there I I think you're trying to complicate it 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 wasn't (laughs) I I'll admit that I tuned out some of this movie Cushing does look good in a cardigan though I've noticed a lot of costuming in these films, and that was that cardigan sticks out to me. The costuming of for Christopher Lee was kind of funny to me, though, because I felt like I could see the zipper up the back of the. the <laughs> well, they just threw him in some mud, so that took care of that. Yeah, that was the other thing is that he had to be in the mud. Can you imagine how he probably that character would have smelled if he had actually been thrown into a British bog? Like, I like how you're like a mummy. A dead body <laughs> smelled worse when it fell into an English bog. That <laughs> like that it would have Tessa. Fired. I'm just saying, like, he was, I don't like, know if so you're welcome pristine. in England he now. He was so pristine. I don't understand why they wanted to cover this character in mud. So like, well preserved. I just don't get it. Meanwhile, if he had gone into, like, a rose garden, he would have smelled amazing. He would have smelled fine. It would have been fine. <laughs> I will say my favorite... <laughs> My favorite line in this whole thing, though, comes from the beginning after John Banning's father goes insane. 
His uncle actually <laughs> says the words, they know very little about mental illness, you know. <laughs> so Truer true. Words. So true, Uncle Banning. There was, I mean, the thing about this movie is it, it's better than the Universal one. I made very clear last week how much I don't like the Universal Mummy, how much of a waste of time it is, what what kind of Orientalist atrocity it is. And, you know, Orientalist atrocity is definitely something you could apply to this movie, too. It's better. I don't, More interesting I, to look I mean, at. I don't really know what that gets you. As I said, it's the most intentionally funny of the three. Again, the the other the other thing that that I really enjoyed is like Christopher Lee, his mummy, like banes a dude, like oh, he yeah. breaks his back, and it was great. It was like he did a bane. Yeah, this movie is weirdly also more violent than than some of the other ones. I also love the police chief. Told, literally said, I don't believe you. This fantasy is like something Edgar Allan Poe would have written. And I actually really don't think Edgar Allan Poe would have written this story. This it does not seem like a story he would have written. No, it, it's, it would only be Edgar Allan Poe if the, you know, Peter Cushing's character and his, and his, um, his, uh, cousin. his cousin, it turned out they weren't cousins. Right. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. that would be it. That would be a, that'd be more of, any other things we want to say about the mummy? Not enough Rachel Vice. Yeah, not not enough Brendan Fra- Fraser or Rachel Vice. Oh, oh, I had something for this. Yeah. So you brought up Brendan Fraser, which made me think of The Rock. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, but hear me out. The person so or I started, the movie? Right. Well, the Scorpion King. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I have not. I really you, didn't you were, know the connection. I the, haven't the, seen the, that. The literal way that The Rock broke into acting right, was yeah. the Mummy. Franchise. Right. I always okay. forget about right. that. So, I just but forgot. this made me, this made me think. So I went a little further down this rabbit hole in my mind, and I was really thinking about the Rock's character in the Fast and Furious franchise, and and so I was doing this whole thing in my head, thinking about how it was a best friends movie, yeah. right? And how you know Vin Diesel and the Rock have had their falling out, and Dom and Hobbs are never going to be friends again. Wouldn't it have been funny if it had been like Cushing and Lee? I mean, they they wouldn't have ever broken up. They would have been in all those films together. Wouldn't that have been great, though? Yeah, I could see it. Best friends. Now now I want you to think about all the movies The Rock's been in and think about it being Christopher Lee instead. (laughs) Wait, hold on. I want want to leave you with that. So Christopher Lee would be Hobbs and Peter Cushing would be... Dom. Dom. Because he's cool. He wouldn't be Brian, who's not Okay, but like, I love this. (laughs) <laughs> Imagine Peter Cushing organizing some of his crew to go into space. It's very exciting. We were like one James Bond movie removed from that being his character. Yeah. Hmm. Right? Because Moonraker comes out two years later. I love Moonraker. It's a bad, bad movie. It's a I disagree with bad, you. It's a good, bad movie. No, it's not. I enjoy the, A View to a Kill. Was a good bad movie. The yes, next one, I agree. If I, you know, I, I, you know what I think we should do. Are we getting back into Bond to get I th- this course? No, back? I think yeah, I we think are we going should, uh, to soon because I need to make Lazi watch one uh, of each actor. I, so that will. Don't be a you thing think it'd be happens. a good idea if we podcasted about Bond? I think yes. that'd go pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I have to tell you, if we if we did it again, 
I probably would have like a completely different ranking than I did last time because I've actually watched all of the films again since then and like have different I have greater appreciation for the Roger Moore films than I did when we recorded coming soon Hughes movie club oh god (laughs) I just wanted to mention that that Terrence Fisher directed all three of these films and they were also all written by Jimmy Sankster who was criticized for his writing of these films by critics but I think Maybe he has the last laugh on these. Anything else we want to say before I wrap up? Maybe Spooktober was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> oh. All right. So next time we continue Spooktober 3, Son of Spooktober. Andy returns to talk about horror TV. We will be discussing Evil, The Vampire Diaries, and Season 3 of Scream, The TV Show. Where can people find you, Elise? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi, E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-E-N-D-I. You can find Podwraiths, a Deep Space Nine podcast with my co-host Matt on Twitter and Instagram at Podwraiths, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. I have nothing else to promote, but... I would recommend that you check out our friends at moviejohn.com. That's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N.com. You can find me on Twitter at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Also, if you haven't already, check out our second weekly podcast, Sam Watches Star Trek, where Sam is currently watching through selected episodes from the first season of The Next Generation. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.